This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 5. The Laffer Curve and the Rubik's Cube Go Viral one of the toughest challenges in the study of narratives is predicting the all-important contagion rates and recovery rates. Despite all the work by epidemiologists and other scholars, we can't precisely observe the mental and social processes that create contagion, and so we have trouble understanding how they play themselves out. To take an example from popular culture, predicting the success of motion pictures before their release is widely known to be all but impossible. Jack Valenti, former president of the Motion Picture Association of America, said, quote, With all our experience, with all the creative instincts of the wisest people in our business, no one, absolutely no one, can tell you what a movie is going to do in the marketplace. Not until the film opens in a darkened theater and the sparks fly up between the screen and the audience can you say that this film is right, end quote. Screenwriter William Goldman had a similar thought in the opening lines of his book, quote, Nobody knows anything. Not one person in the entire motion picture field knows for certainty what's going to work. Every time out, it's a guess, and if you're lucky, a somewhat educated one, end quote. In fact, many films and songs by one-hit wonders attest to the difficulty of going viral. The same person who's had a hit often can't do it again. Also, hits from past years never seem to become real hits again, at least not without significant modification. Economists ec sorry, economics has its own one-hit wonders, including the now infamous Laffer Curve. Examining how this economic narrative went viral provides further insight into how economic narratives lead to real-world results. The Laffer Curve and the Infamous Napkin The Laffer Curve is a diagram famously used by economist Art Laffer at dinner in 1974 to justify the government cutting taxes without cutting expenditures, which would please many voters, if the justification were valid. The narrative can be spotted by searching for the words Laffer Curve. There are two epidemic-like curves, not to be confused with the Laffer Curve itself, in succession. The first rising until the early 1980s, the second rising after 2000, when it became involved with another narrative justifying government deficits associated with the words modern monetary theory. The Laffer Curve looks like a simple diagram from an introductory economics textbook, with one important difference. It is very famous among the general public. The curve, which takes an inverted U-shape, relates national income tax revenue to the rate at which income is taxed, taking account of the fact that higher tax rates make people work less, thus decreasing national income. The concept sounds like something that most people would find dull and boring, but somehow the Laffer curve went viral. The Laffer curve described in the narratives that are tallied in the figure owes much of its contagion to the fact that it was used to justify major tax cuts for people with higher incomes. The Laffer curve's contagion related to fundamental political changes associated with Ronald Reagan, who was elected U.S. President in 1980, and with Margaret Thatcher, 
who became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom a year later, or sorry, a year earlier in 1979. Both were conservatives whose campaigns promised to cut taxes. However, the Laffer curve narrative may not have played a role in France's election of a socialist president, Francois Mitterrand, around the same time. An, anal an analysis of digitized French newspapers shows that Le Courbe de l'Affaire went viral in France too, but not as much as it did in the US and the UK. The Laffer curve narrative has a striking punchline that comes as a surprise, but usually does not pro provoke any laughter. The narrative goes like this. What is the relationship between the rate at which income is taxed and the amount of tax revenue collected by the government? Well, it is very clear that if the tax rate is zero, zero tax revenue will be collected. At the other extreme, if the tax rate is 100%, then all income is confiscated by taxes. However, at a 100% tax rate, no one will be incentivized to work, and again the tax revenue is zero. For tax rates between zero and 100%, some positive amount of tax revenue will be collected. When you connect the points, you have the Laffer curve. And here is the punchline because the curve has the shape of an inverted U. There are always two tax rates that will collect a given amount of tax revenue. That conclusion is a surprise, for hardly anyone talks of a pair of tax rates for a given revenue. Obviously, to fund the government, it is better to apply the lower of the two tax rates, not the higher. The notion is that taxes might reduce the incentive to earn income and create jobs was hardly new. Adam Smith expressed the idea in the 18th century. Andrew Mellon, U.S. Treasury Secretary from 1921 to 1932, was famous for his trickle-down economics, and, along with U.S. President Calvin Coolidge from 1923 to 1929, he successfully argued for the reduction of income taxes that had remained high for a while after World War I. But then the Mellon name began to fade, outside of Carnegie Mellon University, and the narrative lost its momentum. The story of the Laffer curve did not go viral in 1974, the reputed year that Laffer first introduced it. Its contagion is explained by an anecdote that was published in Jude Waniski's 1978 book, The Way the World Works. An editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal, Waniski wrote a colorful story about Laffer sharing a steak dinner at the Two Continents restaurant in Washington, D.C., in 1974, with Waniski and two top White House powers, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. As the story goes, Laffer drew his curve on a napkin at the restaurant table. Years later, after Waniski's death, his wife found a napkin with the Laffer curve among her late husband's papers. The National Museum of American History now owns that napkin. Museum curator, Peter Liebhold writes of this napkin on the museum's website, quote, Every museum curator searches for that incredible iconic object, a fabulous artifact that is both physically interesting and represents a great moment in American history. Sadly, such artifacts rarely materialize, and some of the best stories turn out to be apocryphal. However, sometimes you strike gold. It was my luck to beat the odds and collect an incredible story about, about American business history, a story of political change, economic revolution, and social impact. It was the real deal, end quote.
The trouble is, Laffer himself disowned the napkin story. He wrote, quote, My only question on Winiski's version of the story concerns the fact that the restaurant used cloth napkins, and my mother raised me to not desecrate nice things. Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, end quote. Laffer was being honest about his recollections, but his honesty could not stop a story that was too good to be stopped. Visual aids go viral. Why did the napkin story go viral? Good storytelling seems at least partially responsible. After the Winiski story exploded, Laffer said that he could hardly remember the event, which had taken place four years earlier. But Winiski was a journalist who sensed that he had the elements of a good story. The key idea, as Winiski presented it, is indeed punchy. It may seem absurd to conclude that a story element of a drawing on a napkin helped make the story go viral, but there is ample, ample scientific evidence that unusual visual stimuli aid memory and can help to make a narrative iconic. It's not that everybody remembers the napkin in the story. Rather, a small detail like a graph drawn on a napkin might have raised the contagion rate at the beginning of the narrative above the forgetting rate. The Laffer curve embodies a notion of economic efficiency easy enough for anyone to understand. Waniski suggested, without any data, that we were on the inefficient side of the Laffer curve. The drawing of the Laffer curve seems to suggest that cutting taxes would produce a huge windfall in national income. To most quantitatively inclined people unfamiliar with economics, this explanation of economic inefficiency was a striking concept, contagious enough to go viral, even though economists protested that the United States was not actually on the inefficient, declining side of the Laffer curve. However, there may be some situations in which the Laffer curve offers important policy guidance, notably with taxes on corporate profits. A small country that lowers the corporate profits tax rate below that of other countries may see companies moving their headquarters to that country, enough to raise that country's corporate tax revenue. But an objective analysis of the Laffer curve did not lend itself to a punchy story that could have stifled the Laffer epidemic and the relating of it to personal income taxes. To tell the story really well, one must set the scene at a fancy restaurant with powerful Washington people and a napkin. In the end, the Laffer Curve napkin story may have gone viral because of the sense of urgency and epiphany conveyed by the story. The idea was so striking, so important, that an, that an economics professor wanted to do something out of place at a fancy restaurant to make government officials see its brilliance. Ultimately, the story's rich visual imagery helped it evolve from an economic anecdote into a long-term memory. The visual detail of the napkin may have lowered the speed at which people forgot the narrative, which could have helped the epidemic penetrate a large fraction of the population. There is a lesson to be learned here for those who want their stories to go viral. When authors want their audience to remember a story, they should suggest striking visual images. In ancient Rome, the senator Cicero advocated the use of this strategy, quoting the scholar Simonides. Quote, For Simonides, or whoever else invented the art, wisely saw that those things are the most strongly fixed in our minds, which are communicated to them and imprinted upon them by the senses, 
that all of the sensitive that of all the sensitive that of seeing is the most acute and that accordingly those things which are most easily retained in our minds which we have received from the hearing or the understanding if they are also recommended to the imagination by means of the mental eye end quote indeed psychology and marketing journals have found that at least in some circumstances bizarre mental images do serve as memory aids for example Harry Lorraine, a memory training specialist, has long advocated that people who would like to improve their memory should try to form unusual, highly visual mental images. His suggestion for people who mis misplace their keys, quote, as you drop your keys into the flower pot, form a mental image of the two vital entities, the keys and the place where you're putting them. Make it a silly or impossible image. Example, visualize a gigantic key growing in a flower pot end quote as neuroscience has shown us long-term memory formation involves many regions of the brain including visual image processing regions the rubik's cube corporate raiders and other parallel epidemics another fad appeared around the same time as the laffer curve Rubik's Cube, invented in 1974 by Erno Rubik, is a puzzle in the form of a cube-shaped stack of multicolored smaller cubes. As the narrative went, Rubik was a Hungarian sculptor and architect whose puzzles captured the scientific and mathematics communities worldwide because it fostered a narrative that it represented some interesting mathematical principles. Scientific American magazine did a cover story on the cube in its March 1981 issue with the lead article by Douglas R Hofstetter, author of the best-selling Gödel, Escher, and Bach in 1980. Hofstetter was a science writer with a gift for uniting science with art and the humanities. His article presented Rubik's cube as representing deep scientific principles. He described connections to quantum mechanics and the rules for combining the subatomic particles called quarks. Few people remember those details today, but they do remember that the Rubik's cube is somehow impressive. Rubik's cube was bigger than the Laffer curve on ProQuest news and newspapers, but smaller than the Laffer curve on Google engrams. Both show similar hump-shaped paths through time. Other narratives in the same constellation with the Laffer curve sprang up around the same time. The terms "leveraged buyouts" and "corporate raiders" also went viral in the 1980s, often in admiring stories about companies that responded well to true incentives and that produced high profits as a result. One marker for such stories is the phrase "maximize shareholder value." which according to ProQuest and Google Ngrams was not used until the 1970s and whose usage grew steadily until the 21st century the phrase maximize shareholder value puts a nice spin on questionable corporate raider practices such as saddling the company with extreme levels of debt and ignoring implicit contracts with employees and stakeholders Maximize suggests intelligence, science, and calculus. Shareholder reminds the listener that there are people whose money started the whole enterprise and who may sometimes be forgotten. Value sounds better, more idealistic than wealth or profit.
Use of the three words together as a phrase is an invention of the 1980s, used to tell stories of corporate raiders and their success. The term maximize shareholder value is a contagious justification for aggressiveness and the pursuit of wealth, and the narratives that exploited the term are most certainly economically significant. The Laffer Curve, Supply-Side Economics, and Narrative Constellations After the Laffer Curve epidemic, the Reagan administration, from 1981 to 1989, reduced the top U.S. federal income tax bracket from 70% to 28%. Let's read that again. From 70% to 28%. It's huge. It also cut the top bracket U.S. corporate profits tax rate from 46% to 34%. Okay. And it reduced the top U.S. capital gains tax rate from 28% to 20% in 1981, though it returned to 28 again in 1987 during the Reagan administration. If the Laffer curve epidemic had even a minor effect on these changes, then it must have had a tremendous impact on output and prices. For these reasons, the Laffer curve is well remembered to this day, but it was only one part of the narrative constellation now known as supply-side economics, which holds that governments can increase economic growth by decreasing regulation and lowering taxes. The term supply-side economics went viral around the same time the Laffer Curve did. The Laffer Curve contributed to the impact of the many supply-side narratives because it was a particularly powerful narrative. It had good visual imagery in the form of a scribbled-on napkin. It had authorities behind it, just as Rubik's Cube did with Scientific American. And it suggested that politicians who raised taxes were fools. One narrative circulating on the supply-side economics, con economics constellation was a widely spread story about the consequences of the Swedish socialist government under Olaf Palm, whose government, in a measure of extreme incompetence, inadvertently made the effective income tax rate on high incomes go over 100%. People who worked more ended up with less after tax income. The story was reported all over the world, as, for example, in the United States in 1976 in the Boston Globe. Quote, the typical Swedish dentist works fewer than 30 hours a week because any further earning would actually reduce his retained pay. Film director Ingmar Bergman, probably the country's most famous and admired citizen, left permanently last year after tax inspectors harassed him and seized his records in the middle of a rehearsal, based on a misunderstanding about his corporate rather than personal taxes, end quote. The story of tax rates above 100% in Sweden further mutated in 1976 when Astrid Lindgren, the acclaimed Swedish author of children's books, published an amusing adult fairy tale about it, titled Pomperaposa in the World of Money. The Pomperaposa effect may have contributed to the downfall of the Palm government that year. Similar narratives of people paying more than 100% of their marginal income in taxes went viral in subsequent years, even in the United States, forming a constellation of narratives. These stories fed on one another, 
These narratives were about government incompetence, not arguments for lowering tax rates that were already well below 100% overall, but they supported a general impression that tax rates had gone too high. We can find evidence for the existence of this narrative constellation by searching digitized newspapers for the term highest tax bracket. In the 1950s, even though the highest U.S. income tax bracket was extremely high, ranging from 84% to 92%, ProQuest News and Newspapers produces only 33 stories about this phrase. In the decade of the 1980s, even though the highest income tax bracket was gradually being reduced from 70% to 28%, there were 520 ProQuest stories featuring the term. Since the 1980s, the pandemic of stories about the highest tax bracket has continued to grow. Attention to the highest tax brackets naturally drew attention to the lowest tax brackets and to effectively negative tax rates for the poorest, who were now judged in a less sympathetic light. In the United States, the term welfare mother refers to an unmarried woman and her children who were supported by unwilling male taxpayers. Use of the term exploded from zero in 1960 to a peak in the early 1970s after President Lyndon Johnson announced his Great Society plan to eliminate poverty. Property taxes came in for strong criticism, too. In the 1970s, the news media began to notice a public opinion change, strongly in evidence for at least another decade after that, associated not with a celebrity, but with a California referendum called Proposition 13. Passage of the proposition led to a 1978 constitutional amendment in California that put a firm limit on property tax increases. The Taxpayer Revolt, so named in newspapers at the time, swept the United States. Quote, the taxpayer revolt that has started in California is about as grassrootsy as grape nuts, but it has California state and local officials shriven with fear and perhaps guilt. Proposition 13 is spawning imitators in half the states of the Union. The, stor end quote. the stories that were circulating in an epidemic sweeping across the United States in 1978 were of tax rates so high that some ho homeowners could no longer afford to live in their homes and were forced to sell. Related stories railed against government inefficiency and corruption in the spending of tax revenue. These ideas and the underlying narrative of a tax revolt in the United States became contagious. But the taxpayer revolt came and went quickly in the few years around 1978. In the background was the rise of a free market laissez-faire narrative in the second half of the 20th century in Anglo-Saxon countries. This rise was promoted by stories such as Anne Rand's 1943 novel The Fountainhead, its leadership, sorry, its readership was limited in the 1940s, but the novel gradually rose to ever greater prominence through the rest of the 20th century. Rand's 1957 novel, Atlas Shrugged, also went viral. The novel was about a large national strike of productive people against the majority of the people, the looters who support government regulation, including taxes, to extract wealth for their own selfish interests. The influence of Rand and her novels has continued to grow since her death in 1982, unlike the taxpayer revolt story, 
which was contagious only briefly. It seems that the novels were a slower but ultimately larger pandemic. In, a bit earlier, the phrase, stimulate the economy, had emerged in the late 1950s, and its use grew rapidly from 1978 to 1980, suggesting that tax cuts for higher-income people might serve as an energizer, freeing the supposedly superior people to contribute to society. Celebrities, Quips, and Politics Though the Laffer Curve epidemic may have played a role in the election of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, other narratives were surely influential, such as this quip by Reagan, quote, Government's view of the economy could be summed up in a few short phrases. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. And if it stops moving, subsidize it, end quote. Reagan used these words in a 1986 speech, but the underlying idea dates back in slightly different form at least to 1967, when Walter Trowen, a conservative commentator for the Chicago Tribune, wrote, quote, The federal government operates pretty much in line with the quip. If it moves, tax it. If you can't tax it, control it. If you can't control it, give it a million dollars, end quote. Thus, the quip was already known in 1967, but it needed a celebrity to make it truly contagious, and Ronald Reagan was the celebrity who did just that. Note the poetic quality of the three elements of the quip, but improved upon between Trowin and Reagan. Each line in Reagan's version has the same basic structure of an if-then statement, with the dependent clause starting with if, and the independent clause a simple two-word statement that is a command in the form of a verb followed by the word it. The rhetorical form not only added dignity to the quip, but it also aided unaltered transmission and contributed to its high rate of contagion, probably because it suggests that everyone is talking about how onerous taxes are and that it isn't just the speaker who is complaining. In short, it seems likely that narratives like the Laffer Curve and other supply-side stories touched off an intense public mandate for tax cutting. We might argue, too, that the constellation of narratives about tax cutting and smaller government propelled a social movement, entrepreneurship. In 1987, the New York Times reported on one of Reagan's pro-entrepreneurship narratives. It is often remembered today for its wit. Quote, you know, I have a recent hobby, the president remarked in a speech on economic matters earlier this month. I have been collecting stories that I can tell or prove are being told by the citizens of the Soviet Union among themselves, a dis which display not only a sense of humor, but their feeling about the system. Mr. Reagan then told his current favorite about a Russian who wants to buy a car, a matter of delivery. The man goes to the official agency puts down his money, and is told that he can take delivery of his automobile in exactly 10 years. Morning or afternoon, the purchaser, the purchaser asks. 10 years from now, what difference will it make? Replies the clerk. Well, says the car buyer, in 10 years, the plumber is coming in the morning. End quote. Rubik's Cube was not just a toy, not support, sorry, was just a toy, not support for an economic narrative. But Reagan's light-hearted jokes made for economically powerful entrepreneurial narratives. 
these new narratives encouraged entrepreneurial spirit and risk-taking, and they brought about profound changes in the legal structure of the world's advanced economies. These examples, the Laffer Curve and the Rubik's Cube, are just two of a vast universe of narratives. We need to understand their organizing force. The storage point for all these narratives is the human brain, with its prodigious memory capacity. In the next chapter, we use neuroscience to consider the structure of this repository. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.